0: Later on, but for now we'll just move on. We're going to talk about created to worship. And this is the, the last part in the series. And as a bit of a recap from last week, here's what we spoke about last week. Last week we said this: True worship will keep you from sin and rebellion. You remember that? We spoke about Psalm 95, how it starts out with praise for the first few verses, then it moves into worship for the next few verses, and then it moves into rebellion. It talks about rebellion. It says, harden not your heart like your fathers did. And that's, it's quite an interesting transition, isn't it, from praise to worship to rebellion. And, and here's the thing. Praise, we spoke about this last week, praise is when God hears your voice. Worship is when you hear God's voice speaking to you. Amen. But rebellion is what happens when you don't hear God's voice or you willfully choose not to listen. Listen's probably a better word. Often we times we hear God's voice, but we choose not to listen. I mean, we know the difference between listening and hearing, right? Jonathan hears me say things and give him instructions, but he doesn't always listen. <laughs> All the parents said, Amen. <laughs> it's funny, you know. That was probably a bit of an embarrassing example for him, so I'll have to ask for forgiveness when he actually knows what I'm talking about. (laughs) My mom sent me a meme that she found on the internet a couple weeks ago. It says, um, if you grew up in a pastor's house, you have the right to be used as an example every time your pastor preaches or something like that. (laughs) So I try not to use him. Anyway, let's carry on. True worship will keep you from sin and rebellion. The other thing we spoke about, ministry can be broken down into three areas. There's exhortation, which is ministry to the saints. It's the ministry we do to people that are in the church. And, and every single person has this ministry. We should be exhorting one another. We should be building one another up. We should be encouraging one another. Amen. So exhortation, ministry can also be classed as evangelism, and that's ministry to the lost. Right, So whereas exhortation is ministry to people who are in the church, evangelism is ministry to people who are not in the church, people who are outside, people who don't know the Lord, who need to be saved. We ought to be reaching for them, amen? It's evangelism. And the last one is worship. And worship is your ministry to the Lord, amen? It is a vertical ministry. It is between only you and God. Nobody can worship God like you can. Because nobody has your story. Nobody has your backgrounds. Nobody knows God in your life like you know how God has moved in your life. Amen. And so we have this kind of deal where we've got one ministry exhortation to the church, one ministry outwards evangelism to the world, and one ministry vertical between you and God. Amen. And the other thing we spoke about last week is that worship can be broken into three progressive Stages. The first one is thanksgiving, and we need to come into his house with thanksgiving. We need to be thankful for what God has done. We need to have an attitude of gratitude, amen. Before we ever walk into this place, we need to start thinking about the good things that God has done for us and be thankful for that. Praise is then expressing that gratitude in some verbal, audible, or demonstrative way, right? That's why we clap our hands. That's why we lift our voice, we sing, that's why we shout, that's why we praise, that's why we dance, because we are expressing our thankfulness to God in praise. And then worship is the ultimate expression because while praise is us talking to God, worship then becomes a two-way conversation between us and God. It is when we get to worship that God can begin to work in our hearts and we can begin to hear God's voice. It is in worship that we get direction for life. It is in when we are in worship that we understand where God is wanting us to go. Amen. And so worship is kind of like the the point of the pyramid, so to speak. It's, the, it's probably the closest we can get to God on this earth until He comes to get us, is when we enter into that, that realm of worship. Amen. And so this morning, as we finish up this um, series on worship, I want to talk a little bit about the tabernacle of David. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them? Go to the book of Amos. Hosea, Joel, and then Amos in the Old Testament. Going to go to Amos Chapter Nine Amos Chapter Nine. And we're going to read verses 11 and 12. This is an Old Testament prophet, and he's giving a prophecy here. Amos chapter 9. Everyone say amen when you're there. And verse 11 it says In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David. Everyone say tabernacle of David. That is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins and I will build it as in the days of old. Okay, so here's a prophecy that God is giving, saying, I'm going to raise up the tabernacle of David. Okay, now, let's go to the book of Acts in the New Testament now. Look at this. Acts chapter 15. Everyone say amen when you're there. Everyone say, wait on me, if you're not there yet. Acts chapter 15. I'm going to read verse 13, from verse 13. And after they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken or listen unto me. Simon has declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. James goes on, and to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written. Now look at verse 16. After this, I will return, and will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof. And I will set it up that the residue of men might seek unto the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, says the Lord, who does all these things. Known unto God are his works from the beginning of the world. Now, this is interesting, isn't it? Because you see, you've got a prophecy in the Old Testament, and then you have the Apostle James here connecting that prophecy that Amos gave to what God had just done when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the house of Cornelius. So we have two tabernacles. You've got the tabernacle of Moses and the tabernacle of David. And in the Old Testament, the tabernacle of David had fallen down and stopped being used. And God is saying, I'm going to raise it up again. And here's James in the New Testament saying, it's here, it's back. God has raised the tabernacle of David up again. Amen. Now let's talk a little bit about the Ark of the Covenant. Who's heard of the Ark of the Covenant? And I'm not just talking about Raiders of the Lost Ark. You can't just use an Indiana Jones reference, okay? Who's heard of the Ark of the Covenant? Okay, a few of us. That's good. When Eli was still the high priest, this is a long time. This is when Samuel was a little boy. When Eli, so Samuel anointed David as the king, right? So you can kind of see here, How far back in time we're going. When Eli was still the high priest, there was a battle that happened with the Philistines. The Philistines, if you remember your Bible history, they were a people who were constantly at war with the children of Israel. They were constantly fighting. That's where Goliath came from. Who's heard of Goliath? Right. That's where Goliath came from. He was a Philistine. Right. And there was a battle one day, and the battle didn't look like it was going to go very well. And so Hopni and Phinehas, who were Eli's two sons... They had this brilliant idea of let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and let's carry it down to the battlefield and then God is going to help us because His holy box is here and we're going to beat the enemy. Seems logical, right? The problem was, was that Hopni and Phinehas were both living in sin, right? They weren't doing their job properly. They were cheating the system. They were cheating people and they were not on the good side of God. And as a judgment, they were both killed. The battle was lost by the Philistines. They wiped them out, and the Ark of the Covenant was captured by the Philistines. And you know, if you if you know the story, the Ark of the Covenant got taken back to back to the Philistine um, home capital city, and. And when they put the box in the temple that the Philistines worshipped, God sent plagues and God plagued the city and bad things happened. So they took the box they sent it to another city. When it arrived at that city, there was more plagues, more sickness. And so they took it up, took it to another city. There was more. Everywhere they sent the God of Israel and this Ark of the Covenant, there was plagues in the city. So eventually the Philistines went, this is pretty stupid, us holding on to this box. Let's send it back to the children of Israel. They can have it back. You can have your God. He's causing us too much pain. So they sent it back, and it arrived in a town called Beth Shemesh. And there's a a bit of a story there. When it arrived, some of the men of Beth Shemesh looked inside the Ark of the Covenant, and God struck them dead instantly. As soon as they looked inside, they were killed. It then moved to Kirjath-Jerim, another town, and it stayed there for 20 years, This is a bit of a crash course in history here. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 7. And so the ark is kind of just sitting in Kirjath-Jerim. And the, the ark represented God's presence amongst His people. Even though God is a spirit and His presence is everywhere, it was when you came before the ark of the covenant, you understood, I am in the very presence of the holy God. And that's why it was treated with such respect. And that's why when the men from Beth Shemesh opened the lid and looked inside, God struck them dead because there was no respect there. It's why later on in the story when King David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back and it's on a cart and the cart goes through a pothole and the box shakes and Uzziah was his name, he reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant, but he was not allowed to touch it. And the instant he touched it, God struck him dead. It's full on, isn't it? It inspired worship. When people came before the Ark of the Covenant, and only once a year did the high priest come in the tabernacle of Moses. It inspired reverence and awe. As a matter of fact, you, you read about where the Ark of the Covenant went and how it was used when, when they crossed the Jordan River, when Joshua was leading the people of Israel into the Promised Land. When they crossed the Jordan River, the Ark was way out in front. Nobody got too close to it. Everyone stayed back because it was the Ark of the Covenant. It's also interesting, as a little side note, and there's a message in that, that the whole time King Saul was the king, you don't read anywhere of him actually going to look for the Ark or to bring the Ark back to Jerusalem. Well, Jerusalem wasn't, wasn't an Israeli city back then, but you don't read of King Saul actually pursuing God's presence. You don't read of King Saul wanting to be where God's presence is. Amen. But as you move on in the story, after 20 years of the Ark of the Covenant being in Kirjath-Jerim, King David gets it into his heart that he wants to move the Ark closer to him. And, and we know the story. They put the Ark of the Covenant on the cart and the oxen, and it began to... They began to carry it back towards Jerusalem, and it, it shook Uzziah Touched it, God struck him dead, because he was not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant was never meant to be carried on a cart. It was meant to be carried on the shoulders of the Levites. Amen. And they parked it at the house of Obed-Edom. Everyone say, Obed-Edom. You still with me? I'm having a really rushed history lesson this morning. Now, here's the interesting thing about Obed-Edom, other than the fact he had a really complicated, hyphenated name. He was a Gentile. He wasn't Jewish. He wasn't part of the nation of Israel. And for three months, the Ark of the Covenant stayed there. God's presence was in the house of Obed-Edom. And for the three months that he was there, the Bible tells us that the house of Obed-Edom was blessed abundantly, Because God's presence was there. Because the Ark of the Covenant was in His house. And and there's a lesson there for us. And this is why worship is so important. Because we might not have everything figured out. We might be an outsider like Obed-Edom was. We might not know everything there is to know about God. We might not even be right with God. Hello? But if we can get ourselves into God's presence. Hello? Hello? then God can bless us. If we pursue living in the presence of God, God can bless us. So after three months, David goes down to get the ark again. He kind of figures, okay, I better go back to the books. I better find out how they carried this box before. And he realizes, okay, we're meant to carry it on the shoulders of the Levites. Amen. And so he brings it back to Jerusalem and he puts it In the tabernacle of David. That's what it's called. Now, this whole time, there's still another tabernacle in the land of Israel. It's still at Shiloh. It's called Moses' tabernacle. And that's the one we're very familiar with. Right? It's the one with the brazen altar, the brazen laver. you got the holy place, the holy of holies. But now, the holy of holies, where the Ark of the Covenant used to be years ago, when Hopni and Phinehas took it out of there to take it to the battle, now it's empty. And David has built the tabernacle of David in the city of Jerusalem. And he's got the Ark of the Covenant there. Now, what do we know about the tabernacle of David? And how does that compare to us when we think about worship in the New Testament? Now, here's the first thing we know the tabernacle of David was an open tent. It was an open tent. Now, what do we mean by that? Under the Old Testament law, there were many people who were barred from entering into the tabernacle of Moses. Right? They could be maimed, injured. If you were sick, if you were an illegitimate child, if you were not part of the nation of Israel, you cannot enter into the tabernacle of Moses. You have no access to God's presence because according to the law, you're not there. But David's tabernacle... It was open. Anybody could come in and anybody could worship the true one God of Israel. Amen. Anybody could see the glory of God. It was on open display. You could walk past. There's the Ark of the Covenant right there. It was ready, there, available. Anybody could go in and worship the Lord. It didn't matter your background. It didn't matter your nationality. It didn't matter if you were maimed or if you were injured. If you wanted to come and worship God, you could. And and what does that mean for us? And, And we see it in the New Testament when you see the Ethiopian eunuch. Think about it. He's Ethiopian and he's a eunuch. Both of those reasons alone are enough to ban him from the presence of God. And yet he becomes a Jewish proselyte because he wants to serve the one true God. Why? Because he's heard that it's now open because the tabernacle of David, you could come and worship at the tabernacle of David. Amen. What does it mean for us? It means we have the privilege to be able to come in and worship God. It doesn't matter our background. It doesn't matter if we have it all figured out. It doesn't matter if we have our life sorted or not sorted. Man, woman, boy, girl, old, young, rich, poor, white, black, green, yellow, purple with pink polka dots. It doesn't matter. Every person has access to the presence of God. We can come into His presence. We can worship the one true God. We can lift His name high. We can get to know Him, amen? Because that's what it's like under the New Testament. This is why God wanted the tabernacle of David to be restored, amen? We have access to the presence of God through worship. So we know that it was an open tent. What else do we know about the tabernacle of David? We know that the worship was spontaneous and unrestrained. Now, we see this in King David. When King David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, the Bible tells us that he was praising and jumping and dancing and leaping. He took off his royal robes, everything that marked him as royalty. He took it off in the presence of God, and he just worshipped God with all of his heart. He praised God with everything that he had. As a matter of fact, his wife, Michael, Judged him for that. She saw him out of the window, looking like a common fellow, just worshiping God and praising God, and she judged him for that, and God and God judged her for that. But it seems that that style of praise and worship happened in the tabernacle of David as well, and in the New Testament, we see this in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. People filled with the Holy Spirit flowed out into the streets speaking in some weird language that nobody had heard before unless you came from that country. Because the Bible says that people heard people talking in their own language. And how do you know that language? And where would you pick that up from? And, and, And they flowed out and they're glorifying, they're magnifying, they're praising God with everything they have. And there's no control, there's no order. God's presence is just moving and people are responding as they feel like God is leading them, amen? What does that mean for us? That means that our worship should not be at the behest or, or at the command of some program. Now, don't get me wrong. Programs are good. We need to be able to move on our program. But just as equally, we need to be willing to sit back and go, okay, God, if your spirit wants to move, we're going to let you. We're going to let the Lord have His way, amen, because otherwise, we tend to try and confine God, and we pack Him down, and no, God, you cannot move right now, because we've still got two more fast songs and a slow song before the preaching, and you can't move during the preaching, because we must have the preaching first, and then you can move, God. No, but we need to be sensitive to when God wants to move, so we can respond when He moves, amen. We should feel free to raise our hands if we want to. We should feel free to clap our hands if we want to. We should feel free to weep if we want to. We should feel free to come and pray at the altar if we want to, dance if we want to, sing if we want to. It doesn't matter why, because this goes back to last week. Worship is our ministry to God. And so I might be weeping, you might be dancing for joy, but doesn't really matter because I am weeping and I'm worshipping God in my way and you're worshipping God in your way. And that's what God wants. Amen. Because this thing, God does not have a relationship with Hope Divine Pentecostal Church, the building God has a relationship with the people who are sitting on the pews in this building, on the seats in this building. And that's what He's wanting for us, amen. And however we fulfill that, it's up to us. We allow God's Spirit to lead us, amen. That's what worship is about. So the worship was spontaneous and unrestrained. The tent was an open tent. Anybody was welcome to come. Here's the next thing we know. And this is the last thing. And then I want to spend a few minutes talking about practical worship. Okay. The next thing we know is this. The Ark of the Covenant and not the sacrificial rituals became the focus of the worship. In Moses' tabernacle, the focus was almost entirely on sacrifices and rituals. You've got to do this. You've got to make this sacrifice. You've got to make this sacrifice. You've got to kill this lamb. Then you have to wave, do the wave offering. Then you've got to go wash your hands. Then you've got to go do this. Then you've got to go do that. You've got to cross this T. You've got to dot that I. Everything was micromanaged to the zenith degree so that everything was done perfectly. Because they were focused on the rituals and the tabernacles. You know, we have to offer the right incense at the right time. and We've got to have the right feast at the right time. And we've got to do this and we've got to do that. But in David's tabernacle, it was focused only on what represented the presence of God. None of those rituals, none of those sacrifices happened at the, David, David of, the tabernacle of David. There it is. All of that was still happening in Shiloh. And they said, that's fine. You keep doing that in Shiloh. But over here in Jerusalem at David's tabernacle, we're just going to worship God. We're just going to be in God's presence because this is where the Ark of the Covenant was. Amen. In the New Testament, we see this when the early church are waiting for the presence and the direction of God. In Acts chapter 4, the elders of the synagogue, the elders of the Jewish council, they warned, they forbid Peter and John to preach about Jesus. Why? Because they didn't want the focus taken off all the rituals and all the washings and all the things that you had to do to be a good Pharisee. The disciples were like, hey, we're just going to preach about Jesus. Let's just talk about Jesus and the Pharisees were like, well, you know, have you paid tithe on your mint and your cumin and your nutmeg? Make sure you do that and, and make sure you wash it. You are eating your food without washing your hands, you sinner. Right? They were focused on the rituals. The disciples were focused on Jesus. They were focused on Him, Amen. Peter and John's reply was, we ought to obey God rather than man. And later on, they prayed for boldness and signs and wonders. And Acts chapter 4 and verse 31 says, And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. They were focused on Jesus. What does that mean for us today? It means we cannot let traditions and programs get in the way of a move of God. You know, we, we like to, we're Pentecostal, right? And we like, to, we like to think, well, we're nowhere near as traditional as some of those other churches that are out there, right? You know, you think about, you know, um, I'll, I'll say their name, but I'm not speaking against them or anything, but you think about the Catholic Church, for example, right? Think about the rituals and traditions that they're focused on. Everything is choreographed to the last minute. You can go to a Catholic Mass and go, right, it's 10.36 right now. I know that I will be out of here at exactly 11.16. Because it's choreographed. Every little thing is choreographed. You do this, then you do this, then they read this exact scripture passage, and then they do this, and then there's a, a short 10-minute section where the priest can speak about whatever he wants to speak about, and then you do a mass. And, and, and you know, this is when we're done. This is when we start. This is when we're done. It's choreographed. But here's the thing. You know, us Pentecostals, we sometimes get a little high-headed and go, well, we're not as bad as that, are we? Well, actually, yeah, we can be sometimes. We don't have exactly choreographed things, but, you know, we, we start with some fast songs in our worship service, and then we have a few slow songs, and then we have the preaching, and the preaching goes for a certain period of time, and then we have an altar call, and you can respond to God's presence. We're normally out by about 12.30. Occasionally, we break the rules, and we're out of here by about quarter to one, you know. But even, even us Pentecostals, we get stuck in a rut sometimes, you know, all, uh, see, I see Brother Kenneth's wearing his tie today, and I'm wearing my tie today, and Brother Jimmy's wearing his tie today. And if, if, if Pastor didn't wear a tie one Sunday, there'd be some people in this church who go, oh my God, Pastor's living in sin. <laughs> Hello? You know, we're stuck on traditions. You know, this, this isn't going to get me to heaven. I don't read anywhere in the Bible that says, thou shalt wear a tie every Sunday. Right? Now, we wear one because I think it's respectful. That's why I wear one, because I'm the pastor. Right? And I'm not saying you have to wear ties. I'm looking at a few of the guys not wearing ties. They're like... <laughs> I'm not saying you have to wear a tie, but what I'm saying is that we often have these traditions and we don't realize it. Someone say amen. See what I mean? There's another one. You see what I mean? And so we have to make sure that we don't allow those things to become our focus. And we miss out on the move of God's presence. You see, Moses had all the rituals, but David just said, you know what? You just keep the rituals over there. I'm just going to come and worship God. I'm just going to come spend time in God's presence. And that needs to be our goal. When we come into the presence of the Lord, we need to come with a mind to worship. You know, we all look different. We're all different areas of our walk with God. We all come from different nations. But when we come together, when we focus our mind on worshiping God as a united body, that's when God's presence can come in. And that's when things can begin to happen. Amen? Someone say, praise the Lord. All right, I've got five, maybe ten minutes. I want to spend just the last little bit of this series... I want to talk about practical worship. Everyone say practical worship. I want to try and take everything that we've spoken about for the last four weeks and go, right, here's what we need to do. Because I'm, I'm like that. right? Someone will come and they'll, I'll, I'll, I'll sit down in a meeting and they'll, they'll talk to me for like you know, an hour. And then at the end of the hour, sometimes I don't know what I'm still meant to be doing. My question would be, so what are we actually meant to do? You've given me all this information. What are we meant to do with it now? Right, so here's what we're going to talk about. Practical worship. Here's the first thing. We know that God is looking for worshippers. Amen. We spoke about that back in week one. God is looking for worshipers. And last week, we spoke about how worship is your ministry to God. See, here's what I want you to know. Don't be concerned about the people who are around you. And I was having this conversation with someone via text message just earlier this week. You know, it's so easy to get concerned with other people and what they're doing and things like that. And and you don't have to be. Because worship is your ministry to God. You know, and so where one of us might be lifting our hands like this. Someone will be lifting their hands like this. Someone will be lifting their hands like this. It doesn't matter. Just worship God. And don't worry about what others are doing around you. You know, because it's not about what they're doing. It's about what you're doing and how you're worshiping God. As a church and as individuals, we need to focus on our ministry to God. There's no need to observe others worshiping, and there's no need to judge them either. Your focus needs to be on God, not on others. Amen? And if we can do all of that, it will create a climate that exalts God. And that's what we want. Amen? Amen. Amen. We should not be afraid to lift our hands as well. You know, I spoke about that just briefly. You know, there's some, some people are afraid to do that. I understand that. I've been there before. You know, you don't know what people are going to think. But, but hands lifted is the universal sign of surrender, amen? If someone walks up behind you and puts a gun in your back, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? Hands up. It's in the movies. Amen? Hands up. Psalm 28 verse 2 says, Hear the voice of my supplications when I cry unto thee, when I lift up my hands towards thy holy oracle. 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 8 says, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands. This applies to ladies as well. Lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. When you lift your hands, you're signifying saying, God, I want your will to be done in my life. Amen. I want your will to be done in my life. Here's something else we need to do. We need to learn to stay focused on what the Spirit is doing or trying to do. We have to keep pushing. And what do I mean by that? There's things that happen in our church where it's distracting sometimes. True. This church can be here for the next fifty years. It will always have small kids in it. The small kids we have now will grow up right? And more small kids will come in. And there will always be a baby crying. There will always be something going on. There'll always be some noise, some distraction, something happening. Amen. Learn to focus your mind. You know, as it gets closer to 1230, you're going to start feeling rumbling, and you're like, mm, I need chicken. No, stay focused. Stay focused. Amen. You know, you'll be, you'll be trying to worship and, and you'll suddenly remember that bill that you forgot to pay on Friday, and now it's going to be overdue, and they're going to charge an extra $30. Stay focused. Stay focused. Amen. You know, there's a there's there's saying, the devil's in the details. You ever heard that one? That's true in church as well. It is amazing how many minute details your mind will think of when you're trying to worship God. And the devil knows that if he can just get you focused on details, anything other than worshiping God, He's got you right where He wants you, amen. And so, and so constantly bring your focus back to the present, back to the now, and back into worshiping God, amen. Now, <clears throat> what's something else we can do? Just getting ready to hide behind the pulpit. Step outside your comfort zone. You know, I remember few years ago now. Who, who, Just quick show of hand, who here has been to Dreamworld on the Gold Coast? Anyone? Yeah. Anyone else here been on the giant drop? Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I remember the first time I went on that drop. I was petrified. I was so scared. And all of us, there was eight of us, we we're all there as a big group, and we were all petrified. We we're all like, we got into that thing. The strap just kept going up and up and up and up and up. We're like, ah, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. We're all dead, you know. And then it drops, and you drop, like, the speed of gravity. so 9.8 meters per second straight down. And, you know, you've got your legs dangling out over space. You can't scream because you're falling so fast. The air is getting pulled out of your lungs, so you can't even form words. just... As you go down, but you know when we hit the bottom and we stopped and we got off the ride, man, we were so full of adrenaline. We we're like, yeah, that was awesome. Let's do it again. Yeah, woo! And it was funny because the line of people lining up for the ride were all like, and the line of people going out of the ride were like, yeah, whoa, this is awesome. You know, because you stepped out of your comfort zone. I don't know about you, but I'm not comfortable falling at nine point eight meters per second with nothing much more than a seat underneath me. Amen. So I stepped out of my comfort zone, and and it gave me such a buzz afterwards. And here's the thing: so often in church we get stuck in our comfort zones, don't we? You know. So I want to encourage you today: challenge yourself to step out of your comfort zones, you know, lift to another level. You know, if you've if you've never tried clapping your hands during the worship service, clap your hands. If you've never tried lifting your hands, try lifting your hands and worship to God. Wherever you are, I want to challenge you, step out in faith and just go a little bit further. Maybe you've worshiped if you lifted your hands, maybe you clap, but you've never jumped up and down on the spot. You know, maybe try that. Just see what happens. Just worship God. Remember, you're worshiping God. It's not about what other people think about you, it's what you're doing to worship God. Amen. Another thing, we're running out of time. Don't attempt to control what God is doing. And what I mean by that is don't feel God's spirit and not respond. Right? We call that quenching God's spirit. And if we, here's the thing you might not realize it, but you can actually stop what God wants to do in your life. Did you know that? You can stop. You can stop the move of God in your life if you want to. And we do that when, when, when there's an altar call, for example, we feel God's presence calling on our hearts. We feel like, oh, I want to respond. No, I don't want people to judge me. And God keeps pulling. We keep resisting. And eventually, God will stop. And we miss out. Amen? You know, we worry about what others might think about us. We don't want to feel uncomfortable. But we need to learn to snap out of that. Amen? We need to allow God to do what God wants to do in His life, in our life. Amen? The last thing. Why don't we all stand? I'll give you this last point. And, and if you don't get anything else, this for me was just something that really helped me when I learned this. And it's this don't stay out of the altar. Don't stay out of the altar. To pursue a life of worship, you have to live your life at the altar. I mean, this, this place up here, the front of the church, we call this the altar. And a lot of people think that you have to be some terrible sinner to come to the front. Or you have to have some catastrophic problem in your life to have to come to the front. And, and, and this, is, this is actually a challenge we have in our church here in Cairns. Is often I see people who God is moving on and you refuse to come to the altar because you're worried about what other people might think about you. Two things. One, don't worry about what anyone else is doing. So just come to the altar. And two, don't judge someone if they come to the altar. You don't know their story. You don't know where they're at with God. It's none of your business. Hello? Allow them to worship God however they want to. And if they want to come to the altar, let them come to the altar without you judging them. Amen? So nothing is further from the truth. The altar is not just for sinners. The altar is for everybody. You can come to God and it's quite an incredible act of faith to step out from your comfort zone where you're nice and comfortable in your seat and you haven't moved to step out and come up the front because you're saying, God, I need more of you. And you're stepping out in faith and God responds to that. God absolutely responds to that. So learn to get out of your comfort zone, amen? The altar is a privilege. It's not a shameful place to be. It's a privilege The fact that God has given us something like that to be able to come and draw closer to Him. Praise the Lord. Why don't we all stand? We're all standing. Why don't we lift our hands? Let's just talk to the Lord quickly. Hallelujah. Precious Jesus. Lord, I love you today, Jesus. Lord.